Climate Law Matters, interview with David Rauch, investing for sustainable impact. Hello, listener, and welcome back to our podcast, Climate Law Matters, in which we explore the legal developments across different sectors to address the key issue of climate change. I am Steph David, a barrister at 39 Essex Chambers, specialising in environmental and climate change cases. Today, I continue my interview with David Rauch, a financial services partner at Freshfields with expertise in sustainable investing. In our last episode, we discussed in some detail a report that David co-authored entitled A Legal Framework for Impact, Sustainability Impact in Investor Decision Making. So in this episode, we're going to focus on the impact of that report, bearing in mind it's coming up to two years old. So David, what has the response been to the report? The response remains very much an ongoing process. As we were saying in our last interview, it's a long report and the concepts are quite complex. So I think it's taking a while for everyone to get their heads around it. But I have perceived over the last two years since the report was published, a very distinct change in vocabulary. And people are now talking much more in terms of positive sustainability outcomes. This concept of what is the sustainability outcome of your activities has become increasingly mainstream. Now, I don't pretend that is solely a result of our report, but I think our report has helped to focus attention on this crucial legal distinction between, as we were saying in our previous interview, ESG activity and activity that is clearly intended to bring about positive sustainability outcomes. That activity used to be thought of in terms of impact investing funds. The discussion has broadened out much more than that. It's broadened into equities markets, but there's been clear evidence this year that it's moved into the fixed income markets. And I am picking up a sense from the conversations I'm having that the private equity market is going to become a focus of investors in the near future. In other words, are private equity firms doing enough to achieve positive sustainability outcomes that are important to their investors? So in terms of thinking about your report almost as the baseline, so in that report, you refer to the bulk of global institutional investors, assets under management, totaling approximately $110 trillion, at that time did not involve IFSI. And obviously, you also include some important caveats about the investor coalitions that we discussed in our last episode. Do you know how that's changed or what the current position is? So I'm not aware of any research that gives us a very clear picture on what is going on. And the point here is that we can't really see in detail what activities are going on without doing an investor by investor analysis of what they're doing. And that's obviously very challenging. The real question is, I mean, we can see that investors are clearly engaging in activities that are within the definition of investing for sustainability impact, as you say, as a result of the investor alliances. Those are outcomes-orientated activities. What it's very difficult to say is how intensive those activities are within the investment market and how many different sorts of sustainability risks are being tackled. So you might get an investor, for example, 
focused on climate change, but are they also focused on biodiversity risk, which is potentially an equally serious risk to investment return, if not even greater risk, and one that is definitely rocketing up the agenda. I suspect that the headline figures are broadly the same. So the investor alliances are still around the sorts of figures that they were when we wrote the report. But I think almost certainly what is going on underneath those headline figures, the sort of activities and the intensity of the activities has become much more sophisticated and has extended to a wider range of sustainability issues. And I would particularly highlight biodiversity risk and antimicrobial resistance as as areas that seem to me to be coming up the agenda. In the UK specifically, have the legal and or regulatory requirements in relation to this kind of investment changed in light of, for example, decisions such as the Butler's Loss and others and Charity Commission, England and Wales case from last year, the FCA, Environmental, Social and Governance Sourcebook and any other legal developments? I don't think there has been a material change since we wrote the report. As I was saying earlier, I think the conceptual understanding is shifting and that is resulting in people approaching their legal duties in a different way. I don't think there's been a material change in the substantive law, though. Picking up on Butler's loss, Butler's loss is obviously a case that's very confined to the specific circumstance of the case. It's a charities case, so it's not desperately relevant to the categories of investors that we were talking about in the report. But I do refer to it quite a lot when I'm talking to investors because I think it provides a perfect example of how a court is likely to go about looking at a legal question if an institutional investor were subject to some sort of legal challenge because it had been engaging in positive sustainability impact activities. And I think the case is notable because the court looks so closely and carefully at the process that the trustees had gone through. It was very clear that it wasn't there to opine on the merits of the decision that they had actually taken. What it was doing was looking at the process and assessing whether the fund concerned had exercised effectively reasonable skill and care in reaching a conclusion that wasn't the specific test, but in broad terms, they were looking at whether the trustees had exercised reasonable skill and care. And I think that is how a court would approach any of the sorts of challenges that you could foresee around investing for sustainability impact. So I think the case is very helpful from that perspective, even though it is not addressing or indeed changing the law as far as the sorts of institutions that we're looking at in the report are concerned. In terms of other areas of legal and regulatory change, though, I would highlight the product labelling and disclosure consultation that the FCA has been undertaking on sustainable investment products. Now, this sounds extraordinarily esoteric, I suspect, to most people. What the FCA is doing is it's looking at products of a sort that we were discussing at the end of our last discussion, which is sustainable investment products. What does the public understand by them? Are they doing what they say on the tin? And the FCA is concerned that they should be doing what they say on the tin and that they may not be at the moment. And essentially, they've put forward a draft set of rules that throw attention onto this question of whether a product that is marketed as being sustainable is 
having any positive sustainability impact. In other words, whether they've read the report or not, I can't say, but what they've done in these draft rules is to pick up very clearly on the distinction that we drew in our last discussion between ESG activity that is not specifically targeted at producing positive sustainability outcomes and the activity that we're looking at in the report where investors are taking positive steps intentionally to bring about positive sustainability outcomes. And essentially, they are tying the sustainable investment label to that sort of activity. And I think they're significant, A, because they are clarifying what sustainable investment products are all about. But in some ways, more importantly, they are embedding in regulation this key distinction between activities that are simply outside in, simply involve an investor changing its position to protect itself as best it can from the risks in the world outside it, and activities where the investor is reaching out to tackle the root cause of the risk. And this is the first example I am aware of anywhere in the world where law or regulation has embedded those two concepts actually in a set of rules. So I think it's potentially quite a significant development. I think from what I hear, regulators elsewhere in the world are looking quite closely at what the FCA is doing. So I think we may find it's replicated in other jurisdictions. The other area to highlight, I think, is the growing trend to embed the SFDRs and the International Sustainability Standards Board accounting principles in regulation. These are essentially disclosures around companies' climate change track record, what they're doing about it, whether they've assessed the risks to the company. And the International Sustainability Standards Board are producing standards for other sustainability factors. This is important because it gives everyone a much greater level of visibility as to the nature of the sustainability risks that we're all facing. And it will help investors in designing the sort of actions that we've been discussing, these positive sustainability-orientated activities. And what role do you see for the courts in all of this? People ask that question. And sometimes people ask that question as if the courts are a campaigning body. And of course, they're not. They're there to tell us what the law says. So the role for the courts is to tell us what the law says. But I suppose underlying that question is what would my hope be for the sort of precedent that we could see coming out of the courts? Where would one hope that the courts will provide greater clarity over time? And I think when we're asking this question, we're really asking the question, where do we hope that precedent will take us? My hope would be that the courts will help us to greater conceptual clarity around the sorts of issues that we've addressed in the report, the distinction between traditional ESG and positive sustainability outcomes, the distinction between what we've described as instrumental IFC, financially instrumental IFC, and pursuing positive sustainability outcomes as ends in themselves. But I think also investors would find it helpful to have greater confidence about that process question that was tackled in the Butler's loss case, knowing that if they've been through a solid process, that they won't necessarily find themselves hung out to dry. I would hope that over time it will become clear in court precedent 
that investors should not just be ignoring systemic risks to the financial goals that they're tasked with achieving. In other words, that it is acceptable for investors to support coordinated societal initiatives to address threats to those societies and their economies. I hope that the courts will also provide greater confidence about around the role of coordinated action among investors and the extent to which investors can rely on theories of change, even though they can't demonstrate in a scientific manner that a particular activity is going to support a positive sustainability outcome. Nonetheless, that where there is a robust and well-supported theory of change, that if activities of a certain sort will lead to a positive sustainability outcome, that the investor is permitted to engage in those sorts of activities, even though that cannot be scientifically demonstrated. I think people are potentially at the moment applying a much too high standard in deciding whether or not they're permitted to act. Thank you, David. And just to bring this all together then, my final question for you. What do you see as the greatest legal barrier or development to making finance flows consistent with a pathway towards low greenhouse gas emissions and climate resilient development to adopt the language of the Paris Agreement? Yes, well, I feel as if you're inviting me to adopt the language of desert island discs at this point, because, uh, you know, I've got the Bible and Shakespeare. What would be my extra book to bring on my desert island? Hopefully it won't be a desert either, and we will all rise to the challenge and make sure it isn't a desert. But if I were to choose one legal development right now, it would be to tackle the problem in the US that we have at the moment, where about 20 state attorney generals are currently essentially using competition law to slow down activity that is designed to achieve positive sustainability outcomes. Now, I'm not a US competition lawyer. I can't opine on the rights and wrongs of this. What I will say is that I haven't heard anyone who so far who seriously thinks that the arguments that are being advanced should be preventing much of the activity that is going on at the moment. In other words, I haven't heard anyone seriously questioning whether a lot of the coordinated activity that investors want to engage in is breaching US competition law. And there is a strong suspicion among many people that this is more a political play than it is a legal play. However, the challenge, I think, for the investment community, and I do pick this up in discussion with investors, is that regardless of the rights and wrongs of the legal argument, the attorney generals do have the power to commence investigations and proceedings, and no one really wants to get into the crosshairs of that sort of scrutiny. So unfortunately, their activities do seem to be having a chilling effect, even though when you talk to, well, all of the lawyers I've spoken to about this, they are rather doubtful that the legal arguments have an awful lot of merit. That's not to say that there isn't some merit somewhere, but I think there's a lot of doubt about the mainstream of the argument. On top of that, I think the legal barriers are less to do with the legal duties that apply to investors and the companies that they invest in, and more about the macro policy environment, such as carbon pricing, which is essentially a legal issue because that would require legal change to introduce it. 
These issues are incredibly important because they set the rules of the game. As we were saying in the earlier discussion that we had, you can't expect a petrochemicals company simply to write itself out of business by doing something that assumes policy that simply is not in place. So the macro policy environment is incredibly important. The third area where I think there is a real legal barrier at the moment, of which I think we're all struggling to get our heads around, is the fact that the main target when we talk about climate change at the moment that everyone is using is still 1.5. Now, that is rather challenging because an awful lot of comment and research is suggesting now that 1.5 may well be unattainable. And many people say it is unattainable. This means that you have a group of investors who are essentially working on activities that are targeting 1.5 and are encouraging the companies they invest in to target 1.5 when a lot of people are saying that 1.5 is unachievable. In other words, there is a risk that activities designed to discharge legal duties have become disconnected from reality. Now, I can give you a legal reason as to why people might still need to be targeting 1.5. It is still the only realistic target just at the moment that we have. Governments are still focused on 1.5. We'll see what happens at COP28. And of course, the most compelling argument is that aim high and you'll at least get a least worst outcome. So there are arguments that still, I think, support activity using that 1.5 target, but people are going to have to become an awful lot more sophisticated in the way they are using it than they have been, I think, hitherto. So I've abused my privilege in a way because I've given you three asks. That's dealing with US competition law, changing the macro policy environment, and then dealing with the 1.5 problem. Those are obviously easy challenges. You can deal with them all before lunchtime today, I expect. But they really are things that are significant barriers, I think, at the moment to progress. Thank you very much for your time, David. That was incredibly informative. It's been a pleasure, Steph. Thank you. Thank you.